Welcome to this podcast episode of Narcissists in Divorce, The Narcissist Trap. I'm Dr. Supriya McKenna. I'm a former family doctor, but my life's true work is working with people who have fallen prey to narcissistic relationships of any kind. But I'm particularly busy in the area of divorce. Over the last few years, I've been very proud to become an Amazon best-selling author on the subject of narcissism, and my brand new book, Narcissists in Divorce, From Love Locked to Leaving, is out right now on Amazon. That's the first book in the Narcissists in Divorce series, and the follow-on to that will be out in the spring, and that's called Narcissists in Divorce, From Leaving to Liberty. And please do note that although I use the word divorce, these books are equally applicable to anyone leaving a serious intimate relationship with a narcissist, whether they are married or not. I also have a book out called The Narcissist Trap, The Mind-Bending Pull of the Great Pretenders. And that book might be useful in helping the people around you who are supporting you to understand more about what happened to you and about narcissism generally. I'm also the co-author with British divorce lawyer Karen Walker of Narcissism and Family Law, a practitioner's guide. And between us, Karen and I have trained thousands of family law professionals in narcissistic personality disorder, including judges, lawyers, mediators and social workers. For further narcissism resources from me, please do visit thelifedoctor.org or drsapria.com. And that web address has the doctor fully spelt out. Today, Karen and I are speaking with Nicholas Wilkinson. Nick is a highly acclaimed barrister with the top London Chambers One Hair Court, and he deals with both the financial side of divorce and children proceedings. And he's no stranger to complex and high conflict family law cases. Nick even represented Princess Hare of Jordan in the High Court following her marriage breakdown to the ruler of Dubai, Sheikh Mohammed. This was a highly publicised case, which has been described as the most far-reaching litigation ever seen in the UK family courts. I'd just like to thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you very much for having me on. I think one of the problems is that we're asking the judge to decide if there's no evidence, no actual evidence one way or another. We're asking a judge to decide on balance who they think is the more truthful witness in court. Um, And of course, there can be a real danger of the judge believing the narcissist to be the most reliable witness, you know, given that they're likely to be uh, extremely convincing and charming and well equipped at lying. And especially when the true victim is a bit all over the place, you know, with what they're trying to say and recollect, because, of course, the court environment is traumatising in itself and because they're broken and they're catastrophizing everything and they seem to be over focused on details. So that's a real danger in court. So I'm wondering what would be of most concern to you, Nick, when faced with cross examining a narcissist? Well, so as part of my exploration uh, of this issue, I've learned about disassociation and, and confabulation. Um, and, and so the narcissist suffers from disassociation and disconnecting from their thoughts, feelings and memories, which, which leads to memory blanks. Um, and, and as the narcissist will put themselves first in every scenario, when they're met with a memory blank, they will make the narrative fit as that's all they know. Um, this results in the the ability to create false memories. And whilst being aware of that is important in itself, this is compounded by the fact that there is no recognition that the information being relayed to others is fabricated. So when you're cross-examining a narcissist, you need to be aware that not only is the evidence likely to contain fabrications, 
but the narcissist will genuinely believe them to be true. So they are able to swear to tell the truth and then answer untruthfully without even knowing it themselves. And this can result in their answers being delivered with considerable conviction as their perception of reality is not representative of their actual behaviour or that of, of others. The phrase that we tend to use is the truth to a narcissist is what they say it is at the time that they're saying it. That's not a judgmental thing. That's that's just a fact. You've mentioned confabulation and memory blanks. But another part of the reason why they're so convincing is because every day they put up a false persona to the outside world to hide behind. That external image that they project to the outside world is a fabrication in itself. So it is a lie, essentially. So they are extremely good at lying because it's what they do as a matter of course, every second of every day. So lying on the smaller things is just really, really simple and easy for them. And they're extremely convincing. So yeah, I mean, it's hugely important to to know that when cross-examining. But also, you know, you mentioned about them having memory blanks, but actually the victim on the other side, the trauma the victim has gone through will also lead to them having memory blanks when when on the stand. So it sort of complicates matters further. Yes. So what about cross-examination then? What uh, types of techniques... Uh, might you use if you were cross-examining a narcissist? Cross-examination is a, is a hugely personal thing um, and it, it needs to be tailored to the facts of each case and, and the personality of the witness and how they're engaging with the questioning. So you will need to adapt and depending on the approach adopted on that day, I mean that that can change over the course of a lengthy hearing. So that's particularly so given that the narcissist has the ability to engage in paradox thinking. So on a, on a binary issue, they, may, they have the ability to adopt both sides at the same time to suit their need at any particular moment. This renders them dangerously adaptable and therefore unreliable. Um, but this also leads to mistakes uh, and opportunities to, to catch the witness out. So I think that first and foremost, in your own mind, you need to challenge everything because, of course, you can't challenge everything in court because there's a limit as, in terms of proportionality as to what you can challenge. But in your own mind, when you're preparing the case and the cross-examination, you need to challenge everything and work on the basis that anything and everything could be fabricated, which isn't the most natural of, a, of approaches because, um, of course, lawyers are or should be on their guard at all times. But with a narcissist, the most mundane elements of the factual matrix may be in question. So if you challenge everything, then in a methodical way, provide a clear clear chronology, highlight the inaccuracies on the timeline and really pin them down on the factual errors, bring them to the narcissist and the court's attention, and then use them to discredit and undermine them. Because I think that at the moment, certainly, where some members of the judiciary may be a little slow to understand this issue, and that's not not meant to be critical, it's just that we're all sort of getting up to speed with it all, is that they may not fully understand this. And so the way to do it is to show that this extremely charming witness is actually lying here, 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 and here. And that may be the only way you can actually get through to the judge that this is not someone you can trust. And and ordinarily, barristers seek to control their cross-examination as tightly as possible. Um, which is an effective way of preventing the narcissist from exerting any control over the process. This could lead to an explosion when they feel unable to be heard, particularly as they're the most important person in the room, as so they see it. But similarly, if the right opportunity arises, and depending on the witness and the issues in question, it may be effective to encourage them to grandstand so that they are hoisted by their own petard 
Um, and, and that's also in line with one of the techniques of, say, escalation, where you ramp up the supply to achieve a particular aim. But ultimately, I think that the simple fact that a barrister is able to recognise the personality disorder of the witness must be extremely useful in itself. And that's really interesting because I've heard of the the idea of not letting them sort of tell their story um, by just asking short, sharp questions and bouncing around with the questions so they don't necessarily follow a particular logical sounding order. Um, But I've not really heard that that idea of actually then stepping back and letting them tell their story, letting them grandstand. You've shut them down, but then you're sort of lulling them into a false sense of security to sort of show the discrepancy between what went before and and what what comes afterwards. So that that sounds like a really clever way of doing it. I I think that there are lots of different ways to approach it. That is certainly one, one tool that can be quite effective. You do need to be quite careful with it. Because, as, I mean, the first one of the first rules of cross examination is you answer your closed questions and you keep and you keep tight control. Um, but it is something to bear in mind, and, and this is why I say it's, it's important to understand the the witness you're dealing with and the mood they're in on that particular day, and and why just having a, a blanket approach to cross examination or case management or strategy just it's not the right way to go. You need to adapt and give bespoke advice and to have a bespoke approach to each case. Do you think invoking rage um, could be a useful tool? It's something, again, you need to be very, very careful with. Um, because if if the judge gets the feeling that you're trying to wind the witness up to invoke rage, it's not it's unlikely to be received well at all. Um, and so you have to be very, very careful there because you don't want to lose your credibility with with the judge. And you don't want it to look like you're just trying to, to stir, stir the water and try and um, uh, create this explosion. If you are seeking to achieve that then you need to do it very very carefully indeed how would you do that what i suggested earlier was starting by discrediting the witness what they'll do is they'll think when they walk into that witness box this is their moment to shine because they they if they love themselves and they'll think that everyone else loves them as much as they do and and they're going to be fantastic and so if you very quickly undermine them and discredit them by by lining up a whole list of, of inaccuracies which is um, which can be quite easy to do when dealing with a narcissist because what we discussed earlier about the the, the false narrative, um, then that will unsettle them um, straight away or should do um, because they won't like that at all. So immediately they're going to be thinking, well, what's going on here? How dare he speak to me like that? And it's it's quite interesting to see how witnesses react to barristers because we will always tell our clients look just ignore the barrister who's asking the questions they're just doing their job and this is why they were one of the reasons why there were wigs in the first place is to sort of take away the personality but when you're dealing with a, a narcissist they will certainly see you as a human being they will see your personality and they will think that you're doing it to attack them personally as opposed to just doing your job and so if you can get under their skin um, and again carefully then that is one way of having discredited them to to, to slowly lead them down down the road of, of of making them lose their temper wondering whether your partner really is a narcissist please do check out my online course is my partner a narcissist knowing for sure 
And if you want to understand narcissistic behaviours, you may be interested in my Demystifying the Narcissist online course. Both are available on drsapria.com. I've got a question for you, Nick, um, regarding the use of the word gaslighting in court. Very recently, and I think it was January, Mr Justice Stephen Cobb actually used the word gaslighting in his High Court judgment. I'm wondering what that means on the ground for the people who are actually listening to this podcast, whether that will have an effect for them in their court hearings. I think that it is a it's a very good way to explain um, what is an insidious method of abuse um, and true to form. Mr. Justice Cobb has, has got it right. Whilst I really don't want to detract from that answer in any way. Um, again, I would probably just touch on what we were talking about earlier, which is the buzzword point. And like narcissism or even coercive control, um, when I say buzzword, I'm not in any way demeaning the importance of the terms themselves. Um, I, I'm in fact trying to do the opposite. And it, it relates to the fact that their, their appearance in the lexicon has rocketed in recent years. And the terms themselves can cover a multitude of behaviours and situations. And sadly, that does come with exploitation and, and misunderstanding. And so whether we are considering narcissism, gaslighting, coercive control, whatever it may be, they are all extremely important terms in recognising the complexities of abuse and the advancements with the Domestic Abuse Act should be lauded. Um, but when asked about the term gaslighting specifically, we all need to understand that issue and to be able to identify it because it's not the historic abuse that, that, that perhaps some judges would be used to or barristers or uh, you know, the court users. Um, and, and solicitors included. But it, it, if it's not properly understood by those court users, it's all too easy to just throw it into the mix, uh, to, to drop the grenade, to destabilise proceedings, any of these words. So I think that as lawyers, there is an obligation to explore the issue properly with clients to ensure that the terms are not devalued. Otherwise, it will undermine all of the good work that's been done in this area. I think that's so true. And I, I mean, Really, it, it's not enough to use all these words. They need to be examples and explanations of why it is correct to use the word in that context. With coercive control, it's so difficult. I and mean, obviously, this is a serious crime in the criminal courts, but how is it viewed in the family court? It's hard to prove, isn't it? Is it being taken seriously in the family courts? Uh, it, it is. Um, th- you're right, though, it is difficult because because we come back to what, what I touched on earlier is that it, in well, certainly if, from a financial remedy perspective, is that if you're considering conduct, um, it's very, very rare to, to, to be able to successfully run conduct. So what you mean by that is that you're saying that there's been poor behaviour on the other side and that that should have a, a material outcome on the financial settlement. Indeed, because the, the courts see um, a financial remedy application as exactly that. It's a financial application. And so to, to avoid rummaging in, in the attic of, of the marriage and going over every allegation that's made, the starting point is that conduct and how people uh, behave, unless it um, has a financial consequence or it's litigation misconduct in, in relation to costs, it's, it's highly unlikely to impact on the outcome of a financial remedy application. 
So when it comes to something like coercive control, I, I do think there's something that, that the courts are well aware of and they're on they're on top of. However, you have to make sure that you are able to identify there's a financial consequence in a, in a financial remedy application. Otherwise, it's just an attack on the other side. Um, so you need to draw to the judge's attention the reason for this being raised and pursued, because otherwise, if, if you can't make that out, a judge is likely to say, well, where are you going with this? I don't see. I don't see how this this will affect my decision at the end of the day at all. Um, if your client receives fifty percent of the assets and that provides for housing needs and income needs, why are we going down this route? And so, whilst I do think that it is something that the courts are on top of, we do need to be aware from a financial perspective that lots of lots of clients will say, "Well, there's been coercive control or or, or gaslighting or, or whatever else it may be." It's important to, whilst recognizing that. And, and, and making sure that they feel heard and exploring the issue, also giving sensible advice as to whether it's actually going to have an impact on the financial proceedings. I think the point is, yes, coercive control and, and all kinds of adverse behaviour are indicators as to what's going on in the relationship between the couple and what sort of um, approach one would take as the lawyer to help your client get out of the situation with the best outcome that is reasonably achievable, taking account of all of their interests, not just economic. But but the point is that in any marriage breakdown, inevitably there are going to be problems at, at one or other level and they're going to be some kind of adverse behaviours. And it comes back always to the fact that needs will always be the most important component part when, when one's looking at achieving fairness, that you've got to start by looking at at needs and and therefore other factors might come into play where there's insufficient to meet anybody's needs and and therefore somebody's going to have to um, not have their needs met and perhaps the way in which they've behaved might be a relevant factor in that respect Um, but generally it's not necessarily going to translate into some kind of different outcome it's more about I think understanding the dynamic of the couple because the family court isn't really there to be criminally punitive or to look at the outcome in quite that way would you would you agree with that nick uh yes certainly we are dealing with very very um emotive issues in family law and so when parties go through a divorce well firstly what they had to do was was find blame and we now know there have been developments in, in that area But when it comes to the finances as well, a lot of people will try to find reasons to justify a higher award based on conduct. And and as you say, Karen, that's not what the court is there to do. Um, The court is there to find the it's really treating it like a business deal and to find out, um, you know, based on on, on the statute, which which does include reference to conduct, but based on the statute, how to achieve a fair outcome that that meets needs with with 50 percent as the starting point. And so that is often a quite a difficult message to have to deliver because some clients might think that you're somehow being weak by saying, well, this is simply not going to be relevant, I'm afraid. Whereas it's actually just giving them the advice that they need. And of course, people who are going through a breakdown of relationship, particularly if they feel aggrieved, and often both parties may feel aggrieved for different reasons, they want to have what I'd describe as retribution. That's what they think very often incorrectly. They think that the court is there for to point the finger at the person 
who they feel has treated them badly and tell them that that shouldn't have happened and tell them that they're going to be punished for having done so. And of course, we both know that nothing could be further from the truth. If you throw into that mix the concept of one of the couples suffering from NPD as well, it's not that as a consequence of having been a victim of NPD that you're somehow going to do better in the financial proceedings. It's about recognising the approach that a person suffering from NPD will take so that you can apply the test of starting with equality, looking at needs and achieving fairness. Um, that has to be applied in every case with behaviour, probably in, in most cases, not making any difference, but being important to understand because it's about understanding the dynamic of the case itself and how to handle it. I, I agree with that entirely. And that I, st- I think that all of this is, is extremely important and highly relevant to how we um, achieve the best result possible for our, our clients and how we deliver the best service possible. And so simply because it might not be a conduct case, I, I still think it is something that we should be all be all be on top of. If you've had a, a victim of narcissistic abuse, so if let's say the male um, in the relationship has got narcissistic personality disorder and perhaps they were the primary earner, the spouse has been on the, on the end of their narcissistic abuse for many years, for example, and has been traumatised as a result of that. They've lost their sense of uh, self-confidence, they've got low self-esteem, and they've been gaslit for years and being told that they're useless and they can't do anything, they'll never amount to anything, that they have no talents and they're just going to have a terrible life um, now that they've divorced the narcissist. So they're very, very traumatised. So going and picking yourself up and going out and getting a job is straight away is actually really difficult and it can take years to kind of build up this is what happens to to victims of narcissistic abuse so they they don't have the the capacity after a horrible court battle that's gone on for for two years to just hop out when it's all over and go brilliant okay I'm now going to go and get myself that office job and I'm going to work my way up and I'm going to be able to earn a decent amount I think it's important that we recognize when narcissistic personality disorder and narcissistic abuse is at play because actually it does have that effect on the victim their slow recovery it has to be factored in when it comes to the finances because it's going to take time for them to be able to, to even start that clock again Um, in terms of getting a job, etc. I think that's right, but that goes very much to income. It goes to earning capacity and whether earning capacity has been adversely affected by what has gone on during the marriage. And and I agree with you completely that that would, would need to be looked at. And again, I think that's one of the reasons why understanding the dynamic and what's happened and that the effects of trauma bonding is is so important but I'm not sure it translates in the same way to a capital division. It's a different focus. As Nick says, it's a, it's a business deal. It's not driven by emotion or behaviour. It's not an arena for retribution of any type. So on the division of the resources in terms of accommodating everybody, except, as I said earlier, in circumstances where there just isn't enough to go round, which they can be the most difficult cases to deal with, But otherwise, you are looking at at needs being met. Um, The fact that their their earning capacity may have been very badly affected goes to the income point, which is just one of the the limbs to the financial claims. And I think is one which would be treated very differently and most definitely 
one would want to look at what had impacted on the earning capacity of, of either of the couple in that situation. I just think it's important not to run away with concepts that, that aren't going to make a material difference. On the income side, I think it quite possibly could. What you're going to have to do when you address this issue is work out whether you are going to plead conduct on this or whether it's simply going to be something that needs to be taken into account when you're considering earning capacity. Because the court is going to have to address um, what a party can earn and how long it will take them to earn that amount. And the courts are pretty um, astute when it comes to that sort of issue. They don't expect someone to just go out and get a job straight away after a long marriage and they've been out of the market for a long time. Judges will tend to provide the spouse who hasn't been earning with a bit of time to get back to work. If you decide that you want to plead a conduct case on that, it's it's going to be tricky, this one, because, I mean, we've just had a recent judgment where um, a high court judge has said that in, in Section 25 statements, you shouldn't have all of the, the critical um, stuff and it needs to be come out and needs to be taken out and needs to be focused on the issues at hand. So if you are going to be attacking the other side, albeit targeted on the basis that it affects your earning capacity, you will need to work out whether you're in fact pleading a conduct case there because a judge is going to want to know what's going on. If you're simply saying, I've been out of the market for a long time and and there's been a very difficult marriage, it's going to take me some time to get back on my feet, then then that's unlikely to need a a, a conduct argument. Um, And the, the court will just have to work out how long you will need and what you can earn. On the job application front, if you've made a whole number of applications, I mean, you could you could be successful. And in fact, you're not in a position to take up that job because of the abuse that you have been suffering. Uh, and so that's that's where it gets more complicated. And so I think that on this is something that needs very careful consideration as to whether you're going to plead conduct on this point or not. Because if you try and slip it in to a statement by saying, well, I can't go back to work in two years time because of how I've been treated, and because of the abuse I've suffered, I think you would probably need to have give very serious consideration as to whether you plead conduct. And when you say plead conduct, I mean, is that then a separate set of hearings or how does that work? It's not a separate set of hearings. Um, because it is so difficult to succeed on conduct, you need to have a separate pleading whereby you put your hand up and say, I am pleading conduct here and I want it to be taken into account. And there will be a separate paragraph in in the court order that says a statement needs to be produced, setting out the conduct upon which you seek to rely and the impact you say it will have on the financial remedy outcome. So there are cost consequences associated with that because you will, you will have the cost of producing those statements and any extension to the, the trial that there may be if, say, you need another day or whatever, whatever it may be. So it is something that is flagged as a separate issue. Um, and you certainly don't want to run a conduct case and, and fail because you could be at risk on cost there and judges, judges don't like it. So you could be uh, made to pay the other party's cost? Yes, I think it's a really difficult area and it's one where on on a case by case basis, you'd have to really look deeply into the facts, Um, because as Nick rightly says, running running a conduct argument unsuccessfully can have really damaging results, not least because if somebody has had their confidence undermined already to, to lose on that argument and pick up the other person's costs as a consequence of doing so can erode that confidence even further. 
Um, what about in proceedings where you're dealing with child arrangements? Um, because there is a risk to children who've been subjected to narcissistic parenting that they're going to become narcissists themselves or they're going to suffer from self-harm or depression or anxiety or eating disorders or substance abuse. I mean, our current advice sadly, uh, is not to mention NPD um, because not enough judges understand it yet. But what are your thoughts on that? So I think the the difficulty there is that it's like raising a mental health issue in that if you are seriously suggesting that there should be, uh, that it's so bad that it's going to affect the outcome, um, then there is, begs the question as to why is any contact being allowed? Uh, so, for example, and if you if you suggest that they're they're mentally unstable, then before that suggestion is made, you've got to say, well, hang on a second, you, you, you're agreeing to them spending every other weekend with that person. And yet you're also at the same time saying that they're mentally unstable or in, in this instance, um, suffering from from MPD. So you've got to make sure that you can reconcile all of that. But I think that the, the, the pattern of behaviours is certainly something you can do in, in, a, in, in a child arrangements context. Because you can you can explain that these are your concerns, and that's something that can be brought up with the Kafka officer, whoever may be dealing with it. Um, and so, I do think you have a bit more scope to explore that in the Children Act arena than than you do in the financial remedy context. And that point you make about they've got NPD and it's harmful for the children, then surely you should be saying they should have no contact with the children rather than a nine five or or a you know every other weekend or whatever. But the problem with that is that that's quite binary, and actually. The child will want to see their narcissistic parent um, because actually on the surface, especially with a grandiose narcissist, they're quite fun. They can be quite wealthy. They can go on fantastic holidays and they they don't get looked after properly, but there are positives to it. So the child is going to want to have contact with that parent and rightly so. But I think it's about quantity of, of time. So less damage can be done if you limit the amount of time that they see that parent with the MPD4. So alternate weekends actually is pretty good. Um, alternate weekends maybe with a with a night in the week is pretty good. And if you're saying Saturday night um, returning on Sunday evening, I mean it depends on the narcissist, it depends on the children, it depends on the on, on the situation. But that's quite a good level of contact, I think, um, because it doesn't overly put the children in harm's way, essentially. So that idea of it being, well, how bad are they? It should be nothing. You should be saying no contact or a reasonable amount of contact. I'm not sure that applies. Well, you then also, I suppose, have to address, uh, if you're starting on the basis that you're looking at a relatively standard order, that say half the holidays are spent with, with that parent. And so there's there's a significant period of time there. And whilst I'm not not mean to push back, it's just that that's that's often a point that's raised is that you know we'll, we'll in the holidays they'll be with them for for two weeks straight. Again, with an exhibitionist narcissist, that'll be fun time. And narcissists aren't so good at doing homework, um, providing a space for them to sit down and revise for their exams. Um, you know, taking them to extracurricular activities sometimes. So it's the term time things that actually tend to be where the bigger issues arise. But holiday time, where it's just fun and they can sort of do their own thing or they go away, narcissists are much much better at that than they are at the sort of boring, mundane daily living things um, that don't bring them that easy win of narcissistic supply um, that, that children in term time have to sort of um, engage with. Yeah, and so and so I think in that situation, you'll, you'll be falling back on the drawing to the court's attention, the patterns of behaviour, and also they're likely to be missed contact and, and, and lack of regard for the orders and the children's best interest generally. I suppose it's just packaging that up in a way that, that allows you to make your case as to why 
the proposal you've just mentioned would be best suited to the children in that case. And, and you work on the basis that, that the judge is, is going to be able to see that and, and be able to put the children first. I mean, does that happen? Does it work? Oh, certainly. Certainly. Because then you're just simply running your argument at, at trial as to what's in the best interest of the children. And, and so in, in that respect, you're, you're, you're without mentioning MPD, you're bringing to the judge's attention all of the, the, the failings that there have been. And, and that plainly is not in the best interest of the children for them to be let down and, and to, for there to be uncertainty. Um, and you're also hoping that judges are um, alert enough to this issue to see that some people, particularly those with narcissistic traits, are going to push for 50-50 simply to spite the other side, affect the finances, or because it reflects them in a good light as a good father. I do think that the courts are aware of that. I mean, you do get a lot of 50-50 orders, but at the same time, they're not just, each case will be looked at on its merits. And you just have, it's all about how you package um, your evidence uh, to support your case in that instance. And that can still work, even if Kafkas have reported that there are no safeguarding issues. And so it's been decided that there's no need for a fact-finding hearing. Yeah, and so there's been recent guidance from um, the president on this issue. It's about making every hearing count and asking the question, is a fact-finding hearing required? And then there's a, there's a list of issues to consider there, because the last thing that the courts need, and I appreciate this seems, well, somewhat unattractive when you're trying to put children first, but needs is for every application to include a fact-finding hearing, because it's, it's, that's going to completely flood the courts, and fact-finding hearings are, are complex hearings um, and they're not they're not straightforward at all so it's really trying to work out at that early stage whether a fact-finding hearing is required. I think that's really important for people to know that you know you don't have to have a a CAFCAS report that recommends a a fact-finding hearing you don't have to go through all of that to be able to to get a decent outcome for the children and where they have slightly less contact with the narcissist than they might otherwise have. Sunit, thank you so much for all of those insightful comments and sharing your wealth of experience. Thank you very much for your time and for talking to both of us. It's much appreciated. Uh, Thank you again for having me. It's it's not only been extremely informative, but, uh, but very enjoyable. So thank you. My brand new book, Narcissists in Divorce, From Love Locked to Leaving, is out now. For more information and online courses about narcissism, please do check out my websites, thelifedoctor.org or drsapria.com.